everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hello, Brian. Hello, Brandon. I think we should have a little lightning rounds, and I think what we should talk about is the physical exam. The physical exam. We do those? <sighs> well, that may be one question. Um, of course, we all learn how to do physical examination in school. Uh, it's sort of a core part of medical education, right? Um, yeah. It's how you figure out what's wrong with people. You ask them questions and you you sort of look at their bodies and you, you touch them and you percuss them. That's a thing, right? And That's then, where you tap, right? Yeah. yeah, it's like a, the kind of drum thing. And then you go off to uh, to see patients, and yeah, I guess you use these things to diagnose them. But what is a little unusual for our world of critical care is that I kind of feel like physical examination does not get a lot of emphasis. And that may be appropriate. Maybe it's not right. In many ways, I think it reflects you know, trends in other areas of medicine too, you know, how many people anywhere are still spending a lot of time and really, what's the word, sort of believing in physical diagnosis. Um, but maybe it's especially so for us. Um, and it's, there's probably reasons for that. But let me ask you, um, how, what's your general stance on physical examination? Are, are you, does it interest you? Do you like it? Do you think it's I'm not going to say ask if it's important because I think anyone would have to say yes to that. But like, do you really think it's important? And do you think a lot of that is maybe different for critical care? Yeah. So with physical exam, okay. So I will say I tend to do a quick head to toe physical exam on every patient every day. Now, before anybody out there applauds me and thinks that I'm some really great diagnostician and clinician. Uh, I think a lot of that is a carryover from my days as a bedside nurse, um, because that's what you did, right? As a bedside ICU nurse, you go in, and the first thing you do is you do this assessment of your patient where you, um, you know, you listen to their heart and their lungs and their belly and, um, you know, do a brief neuro exam, et cetera. And I think, so I think a lot of that carries over and it depends on where I am. Uh, if I'm in the neuro ex ICU, for example, I'll probably do a little more thorough neuro exam. I'll look at everybody's pupils and uh, have them answer questions and stuff. Uh, but if I'm not in the neuro ICU, I tend to just sort of go in and start chatting them up and, and I got to get the feel. Are, are they oriented? Okay. You know, are they, I'll look at them. Are they moving everything? Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, sometimes I will go in phases as to do I listen to their heart and lungs every day? And if so, how thoroughly am I doing that? You know, because a lot of times we have these, uh, you know, like Fisher Price play pretend stethoscopes hanging at the bedside in the ICU. Uh, and I'll just grab that and listen and go, that's fine, right? Uh, and then there's times that I will actually bring my real legitimate stethoscope with me and listen and go, wow, I hear a lot more. But honestly, I don't know if it's adding anything to what to what I need today. So I, I kind of go back and forth. I think in my heart, I believe that a good physical exam can give you a lot of information. But 
also, I think that I probably do a thorough physical exam, like for real, more frequently on a new consult, new admission, or a new problem, right? The patient uh, is has a new complaint, or the nurse calls and says, hey, this happened. Then I'll probably do some sort of focused physical exam to address that particular problem and why that may be going on. Um, but I think I'm kind of getting away from doing that perfunctory pro forma exam every day on the patient just because. Yeah. There, I, it seems to me that there are probably two, well, let's say three reasons to do an exam on a patient. Um, one would just be because you like it. In other words, some people are interested in physical diagnosis. They 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 like the process of it. Um, some people I think like the sort of human connection that it provides, whether for you or for the patient. Um, so that's just kind of its own thing. But for practical patient care reasons, presumably one reason to do it would be uh, sort of for screening, meaning you, you don't know what's going on with a patient uh, if you don't make some effort to look at them and, you know, important things could slip by you, whether it's a, you know, a new admission and you're looking for problems or maybe someone you've just been following, but things happen, things change. And presumably if you don't look for them, uh, you won't know about them or if somebody looks for them, you know, maybe a nurse does an exam and tells you, but, and then the other one would be to answer specific questions, right? So you have a particular clinical question and you're uh, assessing things to answer that. Um, is this patient, um, you know, hypovolemic or hypervolemic? Is this patient, you know, perfusing? Um, does this patient have an acute abdomen and so on? Um, so those are, you know, sort of different purposes, but presumably they each entail a different examination. Uh, I think no one would argue for the, the focus thing. You know, if you have a question about a patient, you know, you go and answer that question. It's maybe the screening part of it, which is a, a little harder to um, not necessarily justify, but harder to say exactly what it should look like because, frankly, it's a little more nebulous. And uh, you could argue for making it very perfunctory or perhaps getting rid of it. Um, like, let me, let's, let's say this. Let's say you um, you had a student or an orientee or someone, and uh, they were kind of telling you how a patient was doing, and then you found out that they had not actually seen or examined that patient at all, say that day. Maybe they were rounding on them, or it was an admission. Um, probably that you would think that was not that was not okay, and they needed to examine the patient. But what would you be worried they would not know for having not done that? What information might they have missed, or um, you know, what, what additional data do you think they need to get their hands on by doing that? And again, not for a targeted reason, but just sort of general stuff. Yeah. So are you saying they didn't see the patient at all or, okay. Well, so the first thing I would say, and, and I think this is another quasi valid reason to do an exam is most of the time, this goes back to our previous lightning rounds about notes and documentation. Most of the time in your notes, you're documenting some sort of physical exam. Uh, so if you're going to document the, a physical exam, you, you better do a physical exam. Otherwise, it's fraud, right? You're you're saying that you did something and you didn't do it. So I think that's something. So let's get that out of the way. If you're not going to do a daily physical exam, you better take it out of your note uh, or at least adjust to what you did do. 
Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're right. I think you have to, there's certain things you have to include, but uh, if you're going to include it in your note, it better, you better, better be accurate, right? So I think that's the first thing. I would be concerned if a student had not seen the patient at all, um, you know, because I do think even if you don't do a quote physical exam, i.e., you know, do the all the things we learned in school, listen to the heart and lungs, do the, uh, you know, check grip strength and uh, orientation questions and palpate the belly and stuff like that. Even if you don't do all that, you I think you learn a certain amount of the patient just by going to the bedside and looking at them, talking to them if they can, talk and interact with you, etc. Um, I, I guess my, my issue with the whole, do we do a physical exam question would come down to, do we need to do a structured formal physical exam? I think you definitely need to see every patient every day. So let's say that the, your student says, well, this patient had all these tests done. You know, he's, he's had a, a casket of his entire body. He had all these lab tests, you know, the, his complaint, like there, I have a lot of data on it. Um, I mean, what more could I learn by seeing them? Well, I think you can go back to, we've talked before about clinical gestalt, you know, how does the patient look? Do they look sick? Cause sometimes on paper, patients don't look sick. Um, they're, they're, Numbers are all relatively normal, uh, but you go and see them and gosh, that guy just looks sick. And I think that's one of the things that's, that we've talked about with experience is that having experience helps you identify sick from not sick um, and vice versa. Right. I think sometimes there are people whose numbers are out of really out of whack, but you go look at them and go, well, they don't look that bad. And so I think it contextualizes that data. Yeah, I agree with that. That was um, back uh, when I did EMS, that was always a, a big thing they tried to teach people, even at the early levels when you, you didn't have a whole lot else you were doing. But being able to get some sense for whether a patient was, was really ill or not, um, people would always teach it this sort of general impression or gestalt as if it was this like magical, ineffable thing that you only get with experiments. I, I, I developed a, a theory a while ago. Um, let me tell, you can tell me what you think, but my theory is that actually most of this this overall impression of whether someone's sick or not is is really just three things. One is their mental status. So are they awake? Are they sleepy? Are they distressed? Are they writhing around? Whatever. One is their um, their breathing. So are they um, working to breathe? Are they tachypnic? Are they panting? Uh, whatever. And one is their skin. So are they um, are they pale? Are they diaphoretic? That kind of thing. I think like ninety eight percent of the time, if you look at a patient, you're like, oh, they're they're sick. Oh, they're not sick. You're actually referring to those things. Um, there might be some other like little things that you know maybe little clues you pick up on with experience, but I think that's mostly it. And you're right. You can't get those except by <laughs> by actually laying eyes on a patient. Of course, you could probably do it from six feet away, but. Yeah, no, I actually that's I think that's a good summation too. those three things. Um, I think I wouldn't have thought to put it that way before, but I think that's essentially what I would say I'm looking at too, right? Um, I think respirations is a big thing that's underrated. Um, You know, we joke about uh, 
counting respirations or not, you know, in, in the, in the nursing world, there's a big thing that, you know, everybody's got, everybody's breathing, you know, 14 times a minute. Um, you know, nobody's counting them. They're just writing down a number. Um, and I often tell my NP students and even the nurses, I don't really care what the number is, to be honest. Um, you know, are they breathing too fast? Are they breathing too slow? Are they working too hard to breathe? That's what I care about, right? I don't necessarily care the difference between 12 and 14. Um, but a lot of it comes down to that, like what you're saying, that eyeball test of how are they breathing? Are they breathing too hard? Are they working too hard to breathe? Are they breathing too fast? Are they not breathing fast enough? Uh, or does their breathing look okay? Yeah, and, you know, people will teach... Um you know, what are the indications to intubate a patient? You know, the oxygenation, yeah. hypocarpia, all these other things. In reality, I think 90% of the time, the reason we intubate patients is just for this. They, they just look poor. They, yeah. they look unwell, like they're they're really laboring and they're, they're altered and things like that. So it's sort of that gestalt, but it is largely those things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's that can be helpful to teach people because when they're new and they'll be like, you know, how do I learn this? Well, oh, you know, young Jedi, many years you require. Well, it's sort of the, mostly those things. <laughs> and I think part of what uh, what part of what goes also into that that overall impression when you look at a patient um, is the what else is going on in the room too? Because we get a lot of information from a, a patient in the ICU that's not even necessarily the patient. Um, but it's the other thing. So most patients have a you know overhead monitor that's showing vital signs and telemetry mm-hmm. and things. So I mean that's all real time information, which is really useful. You know, are they are they tachycardic? Are they hypoxic? And so on. Um, and often there's other things in the room too. You know, is there um, uh, are there drips? And you know, what are they doing? What what doses there are their vasopressors at? And so on. Uh, what are, what's their sedation at? Is there a Foley catheter? What's that doing? Are there, you know, drains, chest tubes, and so on? Are there other monitoring devices like like a SWAN or some non-invasive cardiac monitoring, things like that? Um, that's all stuff that you, it's, it's like immediate information that pours into your eyeballs just by standing in the room. I mean, you'll, you'll find me a lot kind of leaning against the doorway just looking at things because you can soak up, God, I don't know, the majority of what Frankly, I'm getting from a quote physical exam from just looking at the patient and all that stuff in the room. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, one thing else that we've kind of stumbled upon that I think argues for at least some sort of physical exam is the sub- subjectivity of it all, right? The we talked about the what their skin looks like and their breathing and stuff and a lot of that is very subjective. I just said I don't care about the absolute respiration number. I care does it look like they're working too hard or, or having a hard time breathing. Um, you know, and so I could look at the data on paper, but that doesn't really give me the overall picture when it comes to this subjective stuff. And for that matter, you know, talking to someone else doesn't give it to me either, right? Because that's a lot of times you could say, well, I talked to the nurse and the nurse said, this is what they got on their assessment. Uh, and I always like to do my own assessment of certain things, not because I don't trust the nurses, right? Not because I think that they're, um, you know, making stuff up or whatever, but because it is subjective, right? What I might call labored, you might not, and vice versa. Um, you know, and then of course I do think you you run into situations where you have uh, maybe some 
some sort of specialized knowledge that you might have uh, that the nurse at the bedside doesn't have because, you know, well, you have experience working in a neuro ICU and now you're in a cardiac ICU and the nurses there don't really do a lot of in-depth neuro exams. Um, you know, and I pick, I'm picking on neuro just because I feel like it's something that people who do neuro really understand how to do a thorough neuro exam and to a degree that most other people don't. Yeah. No, you're so right. And that, because a lot of those things I mentioned, one could say, well, uh, they're going to chart all this in the computer. Can't I just look at that? But right. um, sort of no, not really. Well, I mean, for one thing, it's not very real time. So if you want to know how a patient's doing right now, you kind of have to go look. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, it. there's just no better, faster way to soak all that up. You can see how it all ties together. So like when this is happening, that's happening at, at the exact same time. Um, and it's... Uh, Certainly, if something is like happening, something bad is happening, you know, maybe a nurse calls you and say, hey, this patient is whatever, desatting or something. Certainly, I like to go to those rooms and look at them because you get all that information so quickly. That's why I have have a hard time imagining um, people who, uh, you know, work mostly remotely or something. They just take a call and they hear a story and they, you know, prescribe something. Um, They work from home or something. I know telemedicine sometimes tries to support this with videos and things like that. Um, but that, that's just so difficult because so much of the information I get is just by, you know, laying eyes on the patient in the room and all that stuff and, and seeing all those subjective things that are not necessarily just numbers. Uh, you know, the ventilator is another good example. You know, how is a patient doing on the ventilator? Some of that you can boil down numbers, but a lot of it you can't, you know, yeah, exactly. how, how synchronous are they? Um, how, how, how hard are they working? Um, there's so much information that you get from a ventilator screen and looking at a patient's interaction with it. That is, uh, it's sort of barely quantifiable if at all, you know, how do you chart a waveform? You can't really. Right. You know, and like you said, do they look like, are they tugging at the vent, right? Do there, is their neck, how's their neck look? How does their chest wall look? Um, you know, are they really trying to get more volume than they're, you're giving them? And that's all very subjective stuff. Yeah. Now, I mean, and certainly in addition to all this, uh, I think there are some aspects of examination that nobody would argue are still really preserved to, you know, the hands-on physical exam because it is just not well replicated by other tools. Even in the ICU where compared to, I mean, more than almost anywhere, we have the luxury of a lot of high-tech diagnostics. Our patients have probably got more imaging done to them, more uh, blood tests, more, you know, assays of every kind than in almost any other setting. And if they haven't had it done, often we're able to do it. Um, but some things are still often better done physically. So you mentioned the neuro exam. That's a classic one, right? A lot of what we do with a, a neuro examination is you can't really do it any other way because it's a, it's a functional exam. You can get every scan you want of the brain or EMGs or whatever, but what actually matters is what the patient is able, able to do. And that, that tells you more about the, you know, it's their CNS function and, and, you know, their, their spine and their level of arousal and things like that than than anything else you know that's what i often tell families like yes there is a stroke or bleed or whatever maybe the the scan looks bad or good or whatever that that tells you something but not nearly as much as what the patient's doing because that's what matters ultimately the patient cares about you know how awake they are how uh 
oriented they are, how much they're able to move. They don't care about the the CAT scan. Right. Um, yeah. Other things would be, let's say, um, perfusion. I think you know the a patient's uh, blood flow, the peripheral perfusion to their tissues which ultimately is what we care about mostly with hemodynamics. It's not blood pressure. It's not even measured cardiac output if we have devices to do that. It's how well you know, oxygenated blood is getting to tissue so it can you know, support their metabolic pathways. And I, I still think the best way to do that is by looking at a patient, seeing is their skin you know, pink or pale or whatever appropriate color for their skin is, um, and touching it. You know, touch their extremities, see are they warm or cool. If they're cool, you know, how proximally are they cool? Um, it, do they have capillary refill? If they do, how how brisk or slow is, is that, and how proximal or distal? And th- that's like a if you hone that tool, that's like a a test. It's like a diagnostic tool that can give you quite finite information uh, about things that say their blood pressure never will. For instance, someone with more of a flow problem like cardiogenic shock um, that you you can't replace by any number. Right. What else is there? There's, um, you know, the abdominal exam. Now, certainly that was always a standby for you know, surgeons and people who play in the abdomen a lot. And I do think it's lost some ground to imaging. You know, we, we like to lean on CAT scans. But it still tells you things, I think, that you can't easily get from those pictures. Um, and maybe leading more into the screening world. How often can you CAT scan someone's belly? I mean, sometimes it seems like an awfully lot. But if you're really, say, closely monitoring for something, I mean, are you going to scan them every day? Probably not. Are you going to scan them multiple times a day? Probably not. Um, but you could find that you know, a patient's abdomen is suddenly become much more tender or rigid or distended. And I think that is diagnostically useful. Yeah, well, and I would argue there is a component of the physical exam that makes it, if not more useful than certainly as useful, Uh, but less invasive and more cost effective than some of these other tests. You know, I mean, look at, uh, you know, the assessment of shock in a patient and what we found about just cap refill versus serialized lactates. You know, a lot of times, just like you said, what's the tissue perfusion look like? Uh, Are they cool? Are they warm? Are they well perfused? then maybe we could forego some of these other tests that are either invasive or expensive or both. Right. Now, I mean, I think this starts to lean into another question, which is the role of ultrasound. Uh, You know, point of care, clinician-performed ultrasound examinations of the heart or the lungs or the abdomen or all kinds of parts of the body has become so central to a lot of what we're doing in critical care these days. I do it, you do it, most people do it to some extent. And it, in a lot of ways, it kind of seems like that's that's taken the place of some of our physical examination, right? A lot of parts of the body that we otherwise would have had to assess by just looking at it and feeling it and listening to it, we can now assess by putting an ultrasound probe on it. And maybe not in every case, but in most cases, it seems like that, that it ends up being better. It's more diagnostically valuable and is higher yield, better sensitivity, better specificity for the things that we're looking at. Um, you know, classic one is the heart, right? We all had to mm-hmm. learn how to auscultate the heart and assess it using the jugular veins and all these other things, which are, you know, it's certainly a, a skill that can provide information, but it's a, quite a high uh, 
high threshold skill. You have to put a lot of time into it for it to be useful the majority of the time. Um, and ultimately, you know, the sensitivity and specificity it can be kind of moderate at best. But if you, you know, also put some time in, I don't know if it's more time or less time, but ultimately I think if you get good at echocardiography, most of the time it gives you more information. It's also done at the bedside, just like a physical exam. It's also, for the most part, benign. And so far, we haven't found any harm to doing these things. Um, it, it doesn't even really seem to add direct cost. I mean, ultimately, you have to pay for machines and things, but it's not like you have to, you know, get another service to take a patient to, you know, stick a catheter somewhere or anything like that. Um, so it, it seems like it serves a lot of the same purposes. Now, I don't know if that means that we should stop doing exams and just ultrasound everything because they're not the same. But it certainly seems like it's, it's supplemented a lot of the same goals. Yeah, I think so. Right? You hear the argument, why listen when you can look, right? If I can see what the heart is doing, um, doesn't that beat listening and hearing a sound that may or may not represent something? Maybe I don't even hear it. Because like you said, I think the the amount of time and practice to get really good at auscultation, uh, I think is probably as much or more than to get good at echo, right? I can get decent echo pictures pretty easily. Uh, and you can see what the heart's doing as opposed to trying to listen for that S3 or that S4. Um, you know, same thing with lung sounds, right? right? A lot of times we just say they just sound junky. Right? <laughs> they sound bad. Um, right. I mean, th certainly there are still things that, you can learn through a physical, you, you could not learn using ultrasound. You know, some people are called their stethoscopes wheeze detectors now. You can't see a wheeze on ultrasound still. Most other things in the lungs, mm -hmm. you, you can see, but not that. Um, right. And there are, some, of course, some functional things that even if you say, no, there is pathology there, kind of getting a sense for it, you might do a better job with um, physically. Um, for instance, you know, muscular strength or something like that, or, or tenderness, you know, how things sure. actually impact a patient. Obviously, at the end of the day, they're, they're, there's overlap, but they're not the same tool. So there's going to be things that each one is better for. Um, but, you know, in some ways, it starts to resemble other arguments about new technology and how it replaces old technology, video laryngoscopy versus direct laryngoscopy. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, it seems better. But then you argue, are there certain times direct is still better? Sure. What if you don't have that tool? Sure. Although, you know, eventually that argument dwindles more and more as the tool gets more and more common, more and more affordable. Could you not have an ultrasound? Yeah. How many ICUs is that the case at these days? Gosh, I, I feel like the, hardly any ICU would have no ultrasound except maybe the very smallest. Could someone be using the ultrasound? Sure. And then the screening side. It's pretty easy to do an ultrasound. It's easier to do an exam. So are you going to ultrasound as often as you examine people? No. So can you catch something, at least the, a warning or a flag of it through examination that you wouldn't have caught through doing ultrasounds? Yeah. Because unless you're going to you know, ultrasound every part of the body every day on your rounds, which mm -hmm. is what you could do, then you know the, your, your screening is still looking at the patient, touching a few things, maybe talking to them. So... You know, it's it's an evolving area, obviously. Yeah, and I do know there are people out there who have 
you know, these small handheld ultrasounds and they carry them around and they do ultrasound every patient on every round on rounds every day. Uh, but you know, if you don't have that such setup, I'm not going to drag the big ultrasound around to every patient and ultrasound them head to toe every day. Now, if I had one in my pocket, I might, I don't know. Right. Now, you know, I think we're overlapping with a similar, but different topic also, which is the patient history. In other words, what the patient Mm, is able to tell you, or perhaps what someone else is able to tell you on behalf of the patient. A lot of our patients are not able to provide good histories because they're so ill. But, um, I mean, this is also a diagnostic tool, essentially. It tells you information about what's wrong with them. But I think most people would agree it's, it's, it's the best one. (laughs) I mean, you, you generally get a lot more information when you're trying to say reach a diagnosis through the history than do the physical. We used to say, eh, maybe 90, 80, 90% of diagnoses can be made through the history. Um, I don't know, 10, 20% of the rest through the physical and the rest through tests and things. Obviously, like we've been saying, maybe we've been losing ground from the exam towards tests, but the history part of it, I think still stands up because what people tell us is going on um, still provides the majority of our our direction towards even thinking about what could be wrong, even what like part of the body, what general globe of problem they might have. And then, of course, the better you are at, at elucidating information, the, the closer you can get before you start floundering around with tests. We, you know, we had a, the, a good episode recently with Andre Mansour about the diagnostic process and, you know, the role of, of the physical and so on. Um, but ultimately, even if you don't buy into the role of the physical, you, you have to go through this process of taking some kind of a history. I mean, unless you say encountered a patient unconscious in the middle of nowhere and no one has any idea what happened, which is not very common. But even then, the fact that you found a patient unconscious on the ground is part of their history. So, right. <laughs> so that's, um, that's kind of its own thing. And, and of course, it's, it's often hard to get a really good history in our context. The, the ultimate diagnosticians who use these tools are in, you know, in the clinic, where there are very few diagnostic tools available. And most of what they have to do is talk to the patient and then you know, supplement that with the exam, of course. The, the hardest diagnosis I ever made were in, uh, in PA school. We, I did a rotation in a clinic in Belize. Um, and we had just, you know, a few very bare bones tools, but otherwise you're just standing talking to a patient. Um, and, but you got to figure out what's wrong with them. And, and then it, of course it calls back all these, all these skills that you have forgotten already. And I, I, I used to be quite interested in this sort of diagnosis. Um, back at, I'm back in school around then I, uh, Sapira is a physical exam text. I, I was my favorite. I read that thing from cover to cover and it's just, I thought it was so fascinating. It just has a, a skill set. Like I said, some people are doing these things because they find it just interesting and sort of stimulating medically. Um, but also it was, you know, it was something I really wanted to get good at, but then as I you know, graduated and I went off to practice critical care, as a lot of us find, I think, I realized how hard it is to hone that skill, which requires so much effort to actually get good at. And unless you're forced to, say you're in that austere sort of environment, you just end up not. I mean, you're, you're, you're too busy. Are you really going to, say, try to make the diagnosis without that CAT scan when you already have the CAT scan? You really got to go out of your way to kind of force yourself to develop that skill set. And, 
um, one could argue that in our setting, we have an advantage in that we do have all those tests we could use to correlate with. You could, you know, find something on a patient physically and then go look at the echo or the scan or the blood test and say, hey, I got it right or hey, I got it wrong. I mean, you need that. Um, but if you're not really devoted to it, of course, it's also much more likely you just don't spend too much time on making the physical diagnosis and you just go and look at the test. Yeah. So I used to know a, a doc who he was an internist and he had worked for a lot of years in, I forget where exactly, some, you know, Africa, probably, I think somewhere um, where he didn't have access to a lot of testing, you know, certainly didn't have a CAT scan. I think maybe they had an old x-ray machine that Marie Curie personally built or something, uh, you know, and they had a lab that could do basic stuff. But but for the most part, they were really dependent on their physical exam skills, even in the ICU. And so he came back to the States and he would round and he would look at patients and he would, you know, he, you know, he's do this where I you know, look at their fingernails or whatever and tell you within a few points what their calcium was, for example. Uh, and the residents were always very impressed with it. And, you know, they would always say, I want to learn to do that. And, you know, he would say, well, the way you'd learn to do that is you do it on thousands of patients. And they're and like, oh, never mind. The, <laughs> yeah, the, right. The lesser wears off real quick at that point. Uh, and I do think, you know, this sort of goes back to what we were talking about, ultrasound versus look, listening to the heart, right? To You can get really good at physical diagnosis uh, and probably make a lot of the same diagnoses that we make with more advanced tests, but the bar is a lot higher, I think, to get there, right? You have to put a lot more time and effort into sort of honing that physical exam than you do into just interpreting data they get from a test. And and is it worth it at that point? Right. I mean, this guy, when he's in Africa and he doesn't have access to this stuff, he's out in the jungle, then yeah, it's probably super helpful and worth it. Uh, but in a teaching hospital in the United States, it's I mean, it's really more of a parlor trick, right? It's it's something that impresses people, but is it worth the effort to to develop it? Is it gonna pay off? Yeah, and sometimes it's hard to talk about because, you know, people who do like it um, will make arguments to support it um, that, I mean, ultimately are, are kind of biased. They, they like doing this. They think it's a it's a kind of enriching part of medicine. Um, so they'll, you know, find examples of when it was critical or uh, things like that. And it's all very fair. But, I mean, ultimately, if you had to choose, you know, in, in many of these cases between that obscure, highly honed exam technique or the more modern test for it, I think you would probably choose the test if if it was purely about patient care. You know, if you were the patient, for instance. Um, yeah. So the, there's a, you know, everyone has biases, like, like in all cases. Yeah. And lest we come off that we're picking on physical diagnosticians, you can make the same argument about point of care ultrasound, right? There's a lot of people out there who will talk about ultrasound for this, that, and the other thing that you go, yeah, I mean, yeah, it does do that, but isn't it, isn't it just easier to do this test instead? Uh, and it's, you know, it's because they're really interested in ultrasound. And so they're looking for new and cool things to do with the ultrasound that some of them pay off really well. And some of them are just kind of parlor tricks, right? They're, 
it's a cool thing you can do, but yeah, I can get that same information a lot easier this the other way. Right. Exactly. Well, so let me ask you, um, you go around in a patient, what are the sort of physical things that you, you, you actually do just routinely make a habit of doing, whether or not you think they have any real relevance for the patient, whether a lot or a little, what are the things you always do? We said that you, you know, obviously physically look at the patient and perhaps talk to them if they're awake. But, um, so, so for instance, my, uh, note template in the physical exam section, I have a little macro that fills in normals for the things that I pretty much always do. And I don't set them mm-hmm. for things I don't always do because it takes more trouble to, to remove them than to place them. I don't know if you have anything similar, but what are those things for you? Yeah, so I do have something similar. So I will do the basics of the neuro exam. Um, I don't usually, unless I have a clear indication, I don't usually ask them, you know, tell me your name, tell me where you are, what year is it? Uh, normally, I just sort of strike up a conversation. How are you doing? How are you feeling? How's things been going? Um, you know, if they've got family in the room, I say, hey, who's this here with you? You know, and so it gets me the same information. Uh, I I usually will do some sort of strength, you know, wiggle your toes, grip my fingers, etc. cetera. Uh, but a lot of that is patients who are maybe less conscious, and I'm trying to see if they can follow commands. Um if I walk in the room and you're in there sitting up watching TV, you've just had a big surgery or something, but you're completely with it. I I might not. Um, I do typically at least sort of pro forma, listen to the heart and lungs. Uh, but usually unless uh, there's specific indication to do so otherwise, I just sort of listen to the left lung and the right lung sort of in general. And then the heart kind of in general. Um, I don't do the whole, you know, what is it? Uh, one, two, three, four, like five points on the heart. And I certainly don't do the, all the l- zones of the lung on the front and the back and the sides, you know, uh, I usually push on the belly. Um, if it looks distended, I might percuss it a little bit just to see if it's gas or more fluid. Um, yeah. And they, that's about it. I guess that there are sort of my, I will do this every day on every patient. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I think I'm similar. Um, you know, I'd look at the patient, talk to them. Um, I agree. I don't always ask some things about orientation, although I'm trying to be a, a little better about having a lower threshold for it. One of the things, this might have been in Superior, but I think it is true. Um, y- you will miss people who are not fully oriented if you don't check sometimes because they're much better at conversing and sort of covering that unless you actually test them. So I'm, oh, tr- yeah. I'm trying to be a bit better about that. Um, but yeah, I, um, I will, gosh, I'll look at their eyes. I will not always, but often check their pupillary response and perhaps, perhaps their extraocular movement. Maybe if they're more of a neuro patient, I'll usually look in their mouth, um, and maybe their tongue and, and their neck. And I don't always look at their jugular veins specifically, but I'm sort of there with a flashlight anyway. Um, I have stopped auscultating routinely. And I did that in the setting of COVID because whatever information mm. it provided me did not seem worth the uh, kind of infectious risk of either bringing in or using a stethoscope that was already in there, getting that close to patients and so on. And now we've, we, things are not too bad, but I have not really picked it back up that much. So I'll have to see how much it broaches back into my routine exam. How much do you feel like you lost by not doing that? Because I think that's how that's how we changed our patterns, right? Is 
we're forced to do something differently. And then we realize that we, we're not really losing anything. Right. Well, certainly on those COVID patients, I didn't feel like I was losing much, especially if the option was using one of those disposable stethoscopes. Um, But maybe that's because they have so many other uh, tools for assessing things like their lungs. Um, They're on the vent usually, so I could look at the mechanics there. They usually had x-rays and so on. Um, I mean, by and large nowadays, uh, I think the main reason I would really want it, and I will bring a stethoscope in this case, is to to look for something like wheezing. Because you're not going to get that in other sure. ways, and it's something you can, you know, treat. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I also usually look at and poke at the belly just to get a sense for how that is, and I will um, look at and touch all of the extremities. Um, I, I and this is something I did since EMS. One of the first things I do when I greet the patient is I usually take their hand to kind of shake it and to feel their skin. I often feel a radial pulse, and I'll I'll check their cap refill. Just kind of a, a gestalt sense for that that perfusion. Um, mm-hmm. And I'll I'll look at the feet and leg as well. Similar there, uh, and also um, a quick look for edema, which I feel like is is almost always useful. And then a, a lot of the other things are things that we mentioned about at the room. You're looking at the, the vitals and the rhythm and things, looking at any devices. And I feel like that's one of the things we didn't mention. Just you can't replace through tests and tools usually assessing the, the function and adequacy and complications of, of stuff. So, you know, are, is there, are there chest tubes working and draining or are they are they clogged or are they kinked? Is it tidling or is there an air leak? You know, is there uh, is there epidural block working? You know, if you cared to test that, um, things like that. How, how do how does their center line look? Is it real sketchy and infected looking? Is it does the site look clean and it's good? That sort of thing. Those I think are are useful things to assess. That um, it it's in a way it's like part of the physical exam. It's part of the patient's milieu. And you can't necessarily rely on any documentation or any other person to convey it to you. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think, you know, listening to you describe this, I think a lot of those things that you've mentioned that I didn't, uh, I probably take in maybe without even realizing it. Uh, because I'm thinking like you're saying, you know, what do their drains look like? What does their central line look like? I think I only really notice those when they don't look good. And so I probably kind of glance over them and I've done it so many times that it doesn't even register unless it's outside the norm. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately a lot of these things, I don't, it's not even really anything specific that I'm looking for. It's just kind of soaking into your consciousness. I mean, honestly, part of it, especially a patient who's new to you is just kind of reminding to yourself what the deal is like that. This patient is on mm-hmm. a presser that they have, uh, they have like a subdural drain in that there was this chest tube that they're like extremely obese or that they're out of bed in a chair. It kind of just goes into your gestalt. So you remember, oh, it's that patient. I mean, honestly, right, part of it right. is walking to the room. So you know where the patient is and that helps you file in your head who that patient is. And then you could, you could find it later and, you know, you find who the nurse is and you communicate with them. And it's just these sort of practical things that it sounds so dumb, but if you hadn't done that, you might not realize that um, like the patient's not there. They're in the OR. <laughs> right, right. Well, and so, you know, we've mentioned talking to the patients, talking to their families, et cetera. But, you know, one thing we haven't really talked on, touched on too much is another particular reason to do an exam is expectations. 
right? From the patient, from their family, from the staff, right? If you come by and don't do a quote exam, right? You just go in and kind of look the patient over and take all this stuff in, but you don't get the stethoscope out and listen to their chest. Uh, do they, do they or their family feel like that you've done your job? Yeah. No, that is definitely true. Um, and that is one of those arguments I've heard to support doing an exam. It creates a, a better rapport between you yeah. and the patient, um, partly because they feel like you've de- devoted more time to them, partly because if they believe or assume that a physical exam is an important part of medicine, then if you didn't do it, they assume that you're missing things. Mm-hmm. Um, and partly maybe just actual kind of intimacy, like physical touch, um, it kind of removes some of the the mechanical alien nature of modern medicine. I think there there is something to a lot of that. Now, I, I do think that a large part of it is really is just time and attention. And if you spent that same amount of time in the room talking to the patient or a family or whoever, answering questions, really, you know, giving them your attention, even if you weren't checking deep tendon reflexes while you were doing that, you might achieve a lot of the same thing. Yeah. They would still feel like you you spent that time in there. You weren't, you know, rushing to get out of there. You you were willing to kind of get in the mix and and speak to them and and touch them and so on. Um, and I, I think that would address a, a lot of that. Yeah, because I do think that a lot of the expectation component of it comes with, am I being heard? Right? If a patient says you know, I'm having a hard time catching my breath and I get the stethoscope out and listen to them. Well, maybe I don't really even need to listen to them because I saw their chest x-ray. I know what's going on. Um, But I listen to them and it sort of validates that, hey, I had this problem and he listened to me and I'm being heard, right? And I think a lot of times that that is enough for patients. Even I've had times even where I say, you know, I, I don't really know what's going on and I don't really know what to do about it, but, uh, you know, I, I feel like it's okay. I feel like it's not a big deal and it's not something to, to worry too much about. A lot of times you can instantly see patients sort of relax and say, okay, well, uh, I'm not going to worry about it then. Yeah, that's a great example. It, uh, regardless of whether you've attended to a, a concern or just in general to the patient, if you're not doing it with them at the bedside, they may not be aware. I mean, you're doing so right. many things that a patient has no idea you're doing. I mean, you're, right. you could be writing a million orders, talking to a million consults, making all these plans, but you're doing it out in your office or maybe in the hallway. That may be the closest you ever get to the patient. So they don't know any of that's happening. Um, Abraham Berghese, I think, used to say uh, – what is it? It's like you're taking care of uh, two patients, the actual patient and the, uh, the the E patient, I think he says, which is the patient in the chart who we're, we know so well. And you're doing all these things too. You're looking at their numbers, you're writing orders and notes and things. And that all may be very well and you provide really good care for them. But the actual patient uh, has no idea any of that is happening. <laughs> so even just right, something yeah. you can do like an exam to demonstrate that you, that you are attending to them and listening to their concerns and providing good care is probably quite reassuring to kind of show them that you're doing those things because a lot of what, a lot of that care is so remote now. Yeah, that's a good point um, because we do do a lot remotely, you know, and you always hear stories, you know, working around in the hospital, you hear anecdotal stories about 
patients will say, well, all these people swept in for like 30 seconds this morning and then left and I never saw them again all day. Um, and it's this, you know, not anger, but uh, this, you know, this feeling of like, what was my doctor even doing? Right? He just came in for like 30 seconds. Uh, because they don't realize how much is going on outside of the room. Well, especially if the, especially if what you end up doing with them ends up being maybe more minimalist or sort of yeah. purely medical. I mean, if they got their heart cath or something, you're like, oh, great, I got that good stuff. But if you, I don't know, gave them some Lasix or you like just watch them closely, like we do with a lot of neuropatients, they could easily be like, well, what am I doing here? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I, and I think you could argue that. Um, you know, doing more of this kind of hands-on, in-the-room stuff maybe good for us. Maybe help limit burnout by establishing more of that kind of human connection we're often missing in critical care. But I, I, I don't know if that's true because, frankly, a lot of our patients are not well-situated to, you know, hold up their end of human connection, whether because they're so sick, they're sedated, for instance. Um, I, I think what you really want is to be able to, like, talk to a, a person and have that connection with them. And this is just not the best setting for that. I mean, you want, yeah. you want like clinic medicine for that. Or what I often wonder, people talk about doing, you know, ICU follow-up. You do like a post-ICU clinic or something where you, you see patients who you, you had in the ICU and after they've gone home and you help manage some of their, their long-term issues and provide them continuity, probably good for them. But I, I think probably that is what we would want because then you get to see the patient who was so heavily medicalized, you know, couldn't couldn't say a word to you, you know, it was very possibly going to die on any particular day. And now, you know, they're home having some kind of a life and they're talking and walking and things. I mean, that's what we want, I think. Um, it's not that you want to go in the room and spend more time you know, percussing their chest. Yeah, and I think that's why you do see more of that when you're dealing with populations who the majority of them can't interact. Right. So like one of the nice things about the services I'm on is that, you know, at any given point, we'll have a, a some percentage of patients in the neuro ICU, for example, who, you know, they have a low grade subarachnoid hemorrhage or something and they're, but they're relatively normal. You can go in and have a conversation with them. Same thing in the surgical ICU. I'll have patients who have, uh, you know, an elective esophagectomy, let's say, that buys them a couple of nights in the ICU, but they're for the most part doing well and they're fine. Um, and then you go through these stretches where everyone is intubated. Everyone's on ECMO. Everyone is in some sort of state where they're not able to interact with you. Uh, and those days I think do feel harder. Yeah. And I probably like you, I, I do enjoy having high acuity patients and you know, resuscitating them and doing yeah, all absolutely. these things that we do. That's why we like critical care. But there's, there's sort of a, a, a slippery slope there, which can feel a little dangerous, which, you know, if that's all you're ever doing, um, right. it, it starts to feel like uh, I uh, interviewed a guy back when I was doing EMS who coined the term of flesh mechanic. You're just sort of fixing broken machines, uh, yeah, but you totally yeah. forget that there's people in there at all. And that is interesting in a, in a, in a purely mechanical way, but I, it's, if that is all you're ever doing, I think most of us do burn out on it. Because it's just yeah, not absolutely. as interesting if if that's a hundred percent of your job than if you were you know helping people, which you can start to forget if you never get to see them or talk to them. That's part of why right. some of these kind of ideas of of 
ICU liberation and these, you know, the A through F bundle and things like that are valuable for us, I think. Being able to see a patient who's awake and interactive and walking around and things, even if they're still sick in the ICU on the ventilator, um, is sort of liberating for us because it reminds you that they're, they're a person and not just a pile of meat. Yeah, I think that's true. All right, Brian, what else can we say about the physical exam? I don't know. We've sort of wandered from physical exam to the relevance of new testing technologies and into a little bit of uh, philosophy even. Um, so I think we've covered it well. Sure. A little of everything. Well, I'm eager to hear if anyone else has thoughts on this. I think it gets a lot at kind of what, what you think medicine is about, what interests you about it and people's general approaches to it. So feel free to reach out to us. Uh, we'd be very interested to hear. And otherwise, we'll see you guys in a couple of weeks. Thanks a lot. See ya.